Hello and welcome to our new podcast. So today, I, Alex Patel, am going to be talking with Tracy Dix, my colleague, about how to pick yourself up after failure. So this is in the context of both life and academic development. Over to you, Tracy. What would you like to start with? The topic for today's podcast episode, I suppose, was inspired by our last brainstorm. So we've started holding brainstorms, which I think we're going to be doing. What are we doing, Alex? Are they going to be fortnightly or monthly? Fortnightly. Okay, we're going to be doing them fortnightly. And the idea is that we're going to be brainstorming your essay question. So if you are not yet analyzing your essay question before you start working on assignments, then do come and join us and see what it has to offer. But yes, so in the last brainstorm we ran, I was talking, I can't really remember the context of this anymore, but I was talking about how I basically completed three English literature degrees. To some people, that might be seen as a success, but on reflection, on hindsight, I actually think I sort of failed my way to three degrees. And the reason for this is because after I completed my first degree, I didn't particularly know what to do with it. Everyone said, you're gonna, aren't you going to become a teacher? What are you going to teach? Kind of, if you're studying English literature, you are going to become a teacher. So at this point you said, dear God, no, I do not want to become a teacher. Exactly. Well, being the very petulant young adult that I was, of course, the moment someone said that that was what I was going to do, I was adamant that that was not what I was going to do. However, I didn't really know how to find a job and I didn't really know how to what to do with an English degree. So actually a lyric from, if anyone has watched Avenue Q, a lyric from Avenue Q springs to mind. What do you do with a BA in English? <laughs> so basically, that was my situation. So from there, I decided to apply for a master's um, because I was very into Shakespeare and Renaissance drama at the time. So that's what I did. And when I completed that, I got a studentship at the University of Loughborough to do a PhD. So I guess you can say I kept putting off finding a job and entering the real world because I was able to. So in some in some ways, I was very privileged to have been able to do all that. But in others, I feel like I also just ended up putting off what was going to be eventual anyway. I was going to have to go find my way somehow after doing three degrees. Okay. Should I tell you my experience? Yes, please. <laughs> I also did not have a direction. At the end of my A-levels, I thought, I want to try and understand myself and other people better. So I'm going to do psychology. But luckily, I ended up on a psychology and neuroscience course. So it was joint honours, so that's quite difficult because you're trying to balance the two different things. I hated psychology in the end. There was a lot of, I guess, assumptions about the black box of the brain and what that might actually mean. So a lot of the experiments, it's hard to relate to, I guess, concrete findings. Psychologists will hate to hear that. But I did really enjoy the neuroscience part of it. So end of degree, not sure what to do, a bit like you, Tracy. I went for a master's. 
<laughs> master's in research. Absolutely loved it. Worked super, super hard. Really got into it. And then obviously I was like, okay, PhD is next. You know, I would like to go into research. Just fair enough. So I did. Had to apply for a load of different PhDs. Ended up, the ones that I wanted were very hard to get. So contacting people and saying, ooh, do you fancy a bit of research on this? Didn't work. However, applying for something that had already been established. So we've got the title. That was Aimed Limb Movements in Insects. And at the time, I was really interested in movement and how the brain controls movement particularly around kind of like Parkinson's and things like that. And I thought, okay, maybe this is a way into that area. I'll start off with understanding it in insects. Um, turns out that was not quite accurate. But anyway, four years later, I have a PhD in aimed <laughs> limb movements in insects. Sorry, in a singular insect, the locust. Well done, Alex. I haven't shared what my <clears throat> PhD was in, and perhaps I should. So my PhD was on the banquet course. It was on, I can't remember the title now, but oh, I think the, the title was Appropriations of the Early Modern Banquet Course in the Place of Shakespeare and His Contemporaries. It was kind of similar to that anyway. And actually, at the time that I undertook the PhD, I really wanted to be like a food consultant, you know, like a historical consultant. And I, I think along the way, I realized exactly how obsessed about food I was going to have to be in order to pull that off. And I think the thing with you and I, Alex, is we're both pretty interested in lots and lots of things. But I wouldn't exactly say we are single-mindedly obsessed about any one thing. No, which, no. Yeah. It's not good to be totally obsessed because i mean angular movements appropriation of what banqueting in the shakespearean <laughs> era those are very specific things we don't want to get more into a topic than that no but i think in my in my kind of idealistic young mind i thought that when people were for example producing films that were set in a particular era they might want to consult a food consultant which well, i they believe should. They, they should Yes, and I believe they do. So it, it is actually but it's not a thing. <laughs> but it, uh, but I realized it wasn't me because of the lack of single-minded obsession with one particular thing. You know, because I went to a couple of food conferences and they were they were quite good fun. But even for me, I think a, a few days where all people wanted to talk about was food, and I just kind of realized actually, I think my interests are a little bit more diverse than that. And I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I think perhaps. From there, we sort of fell into, you know, we've, we've fallen into roles that suit us a little bit better mm -hmm. because we're supporting students with their academic attainments. I feel like we get to learn about lots of different things because mm -hmm. we're not subject specialists in every area. You can't be, really. But at the same time, so when a student comes and says, oh, I've got an essay or an assignment that I would like some help with, they have to tell us about that subject area. And so while we're supporting them with academic writing and how to interpret the question and those sorts of things, the students are teaching us about their discipline. I know, and it's they wonderful. Have... I enjoy that so much. Yeah, so I really enjoy that aspect of, of the job, you know. And uh, we get to learn new things like almost every day because of that, which is really cool. Mm. But for years, so I believe you did this as well, Alex. So after, during 
while we were working on our PhDs, we both did some teaching, didn't we? Yes, I used to demonstrate in practical classes, and I also ran tutorials. Yeah. Stuff I didn't necessarily know that much about, which is quite intriguing. Well, yes. Yeah, I taught seminars while I was doing my PhD in poetry, which I didn't realise I was particularly interested in until I had to teach it. I mean, a lot of Shakespeare is poetry, but anyway. So it was a module that I had taken in my first year, and then I went on to teach it while I was doing my PhD. And I got extremely familiar with IMs and trill keys. And I can't remember the other rhythms now. And so after so after graduating with PhD, I suppose the natural progression was to try and pursue an academic career, which I did for a while. And then it, it didn't happen. And I got distracted by other so, things. So what did you do? Did you get a job as like a, a researcher or something? Or were you pursuing no. that and unsuccessful? Um, so, okay, so I was an international student. And so mm. for kind of visa complications, I wasn't allowed to work for six months. And I'm, I'm not sure if this is the case still, but I was applying for a marriage visa. And one of the requirements of a marriage visa is you're not allowed to work for six months. So in the process process of having to prove that you can sustain yourself, your economically s- work. Yes. They they just <laughs> you know, they don't allow you to work and they basically do away with your career. Like you you're basically oh. throwing your career away, aren't you, as an as a young wow. academic? Because to not be able to work for six months, I feel is quite detrimental. I mean, wow. people did say, oh, you know, spend the six months writing your book, turn your PhD into a book and things like that. Your but monologue. Yes. My monologue. But, I mean, if I'm honest, I was far too tired for that after finishing the PhD. And for anyone who is thinking, considering this route, or if you're already in it, I mean, you feel you, it is, it is really exhausting. It is, it is. But, you know, and some, some people really thrive in that situation but I would say that probably 90% of PhD students I've spoken to are exhausted I can't think of a single person who has not been exhausted so I work closely with another PhD student and she finished and she just couldn't handle going back into research straight away so she I think she went travelling for a year and then she came back after that Mm. See, traveling for a year is quite nice, isn't it? But I think by that time, having been a three-time student, I really felt like I couldn't just go traveling for a year <laughs> on someone else's yeah. money because I didn't really have my own. Yeah, and oh, also I believe I had to stay in the country anyway, so I suppose I could have traveled within the UK, but anyway, I didn't. So I got distracted. So during that time with post-PhD fatigue, I found a book. That was all about making sock dolls. Do you know this story, Alex? <laughs> Sorry, Alex is pros from over there. Oh, okay. Alex was speechless. Have you heard about the the sock creation yeah. thing? That was yeah. what happened in your six month interlude. Yes, it was. So I was I was mooching about in Oxford. We lived near Oxford at the time, and I picked up this book on how to make sock dolls, and they were great. And so I kind of started an obsession where I made sock dolls and um, decided I wanted to start a business out of it. You know, just to throw my parents yet another curveball you know, <laughs> on top of, on top of, first of all, wanting to study the subject in the arts. 
wanting to do a master's in it and then wanting to do a PhD, like, oh my goodness. And then, oh, by the way, mum, I want to start a business making sock dolls. Anyway, but, I did that. Okay, okay. But I have seen your sock dolls. They're actually, I, I, I don't want to <laughs> say cute. They're quite, I don't want to say morbid, but <laughs> they, they, they have personality is what I'm trying to say, I guess. It's I, not your average sock doll. I would describe them as edgy. Okay, we'll go. Were, I have seen some far more morbid things out there. It's okay. So when <laughs> I was making my sock dolls, I know someone had <laughs> commercialized these stuffed toys that were basically on a roadkill theme. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> so you could get... So, yeah, I'm sorry... Everyone, I'm not. I'm not sure where this episode is going today. We might have but, to cut this. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think there is a point to all of this, anyway. So, yeah. So, so someone was making toys that were like roadkill raccoons, with oh, you know their goodness. eyeballs popping out and oh, and then guts. Yeah, and then they were and then they were packaged in a body bag. That was like the whole marketing concept. Where so can I, I get this for my young daughter? Is the question that many of our viewers are asking. I, you know, I really think there will be some people who are probably thinking right now, like, take my money, I want this. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if they're still in production, but I'm sure you can, you know, Google is your friend if you look okay. up roadkill stuffed toy or something. I'm sh- happy I'm sure birthday, that- Sophie. <laughs> Sophie is a lucky girl. So okay, so I went on. I went on to make sock dolls and basically gave up on an academic career from there. I just really was not into it anymore. You gave up on an academic career to make sock dolls. Well, I got that reaction a lot, actually, (laughs) Um, and it's very interesting because at one family gathering, I was about thirty-two at the time. I showed off these beautifully packaged dolls. They were in like shoe boxes because they were made out of socks. And I spray painted the front of them and they were very well presented and everyone said how amazing it was. And then I can't remember how, but the subject of my age came up and people went kind of speechless. And one guest at the party said, Oh, I thought you were 18 years old. <laughs> Which made me think, okay, so perhaps the reason you were so encouraging and so enthusiastic was because you thought I was an enterprising 18-year-old. And so in that context, it's like, wow, this is such an amazing achievement. But no, you're 32. And really, the kind of framing of where your life should be at that point in time, to many people, I guess, would be quite different, wouldn't it? Because, so you know, at the age of 32... All I can say to that is, no, no. No one should be framing your life apart from you. Well... And thank you, Alex. I completely agree with you. However, maybe, maybe do, your partner has a constructive suggestion as well. Perhaps. I mean, he's not here. Well, he is in the house at the moment, but he's not up here with us. So, <laughs> yeah. So my husband, Andy, has always been very supportive, which I think is quite an achievement considering the things that he has, you know, he has lived in a small terrace that was full of enormous cardboard boxes all the time and he has lived with my mess and my stress when I've been marking assignments and all kinds of things so shout out to Andy um well done Andy yes well done Andy your support is much appreciated your patience and your straight-facedness 
when I say, hey, I've got an idea, is very much to be commended. But actually, on hindsight, I learned a huge amount from running that sock doll business because I was, you know, marketing it on my own and we were taking it to fairs and selling, basically, practice at selling. And one of the things about essay writing is it's a persuasive skill. You're trying to talk someone round to your way of thinking. So whatever the situation is, because, you know, many students are not actually going to go on to a postgraduate, well, or several essays for the rest of their lives. No, you're not, are you? Like most, most I would students hope are not. <laughs> well, now that, that would heard, be the worst nightmare for a lot of people, I'm sure. Now, well, see, now that you've heard of about the future that Alex and I have progressed onto, having done our first degree, it might put you off pursuing postgraduate. But anyway, yeah. So I was, I was saying about how essay writing is a persuasive skill, and this is something that you'll need in any undertaking that you go on to you know, after you graduate. But in within different contexts, it really is about always understanding who your target audience really is and speaking to them in a way that resonates and makes them, in my situation then, to buy from you. And it's part of, you know, them in liking your personality. So you're kind of injecting your personality into your work a bit as well. I think that has a lot to do with communication. Alex, in the outside look, world, shape well rocking my head a little bit so with essays no so i would say in essays it's a little bit less about personality but okay. i think i would say that is that is the nice thing to have but you need to get you know you need to get the relevant evidence you need to be able to write fluently yeah so such that you know as when when a marker is reading your essay it's not hard going to mm. understand what you mean yeah um, and a subtle and to, amount of personality can help it flow I think so. But yeah, I would agree that generally in the realm of academic writing, it's not really about personality. It's about creating an an evidence-based argument. But the idea of persuasion is still Mm. there. So you still have to be persuasive, but without too much personality. But in the real world, you can use the persuasiveness that you've learned from essay writing. With a personality. A sprinkle of emotion and personality. Indeed. Tug on the heartstrings of the people you're trying to convince. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think in, in the very digital age that we're living in at the moment, you know, on Instagram, TikTok, or wherever, wherever you are, it is about that personality. Mm. And, you know, whenever I find myself, this, this happens. Whenever I find myself distracted in the evening and scrolling through stuff on social media, that is the thing that grabs me. You know, it's always about someone's personality that makes mm. me want to see more of them. So anyway, where was that conversation going? It's about picking yourself up from failure. It is about, yes, it is about picking yourself up from failure. And we digressed with my sock dolls a little bit and the, and the things I learned from that. So, okay, so the point there is that sometimes, or sometimes the benefit of hindsight is what helps you to kind of understand where certain challenges that you faced in life have helped you, have kind of brought you experiences that you wouldn't necessarily have had. But I, I think it's very much the case that failure is 
stepping stones to success. Because if you think about, yeah, okay, so think about a metaphor sense. that's very physical. So I think with studying, most of us, we feel the struggle, but we particularly don't see other people's struggles. So I think it's not so well recognized. And for some reason, a lot of people just kind of expect to be able to do something. So in their first year, they just expect to be able to do it. And actually, you should still be, you're learning the skills and you're learning the kind of academic rigor and the expectations. Mm. And there is a lot of growth during a university degree that I feel a lot of students don't quite appreciate. Whereas, for example, a baby who is learning to walk, you see the failure you see you the progress fall over. Yeah. Yes. And you see how it's not a linear process. Yeah. So they fall over, they pick themselves up, they try again, but they fall a lot more than they walk successfully at the very beginning. And then some days, you know, and they have better days where they can walk a few steps more and then other days when they're tired or, you know, <laughs> whatever they're they Running off into danger. That is my experience <laughs> of yeah. children go, learning to walk. They're like, oh, yeah. Is that a knife over there? I'm going to run at that. And launch themselves into things because they haven't quite re- refined their exactly. reflexes yeah. yet. Oh, Alex, you are the expert on this. Movement. I and how am, the brain pretty good, yeah. Controls movement. It, it um, does. <laughs> what do you want to know? <laughs> it does. So, well, I was, I was just saying about how when you look at children learning how to, or babies learning how to walk, the the failures, the growth is so visible, whereas when it comes to studying, especially for 18-year-olds and older, I don't think we acknowledge the challenge as much. And it's no, almost, no. and I, I would say this is true of students as well as teachers and the people who are kind of mentoring them. So you were saying about how children, babies falling when they learn to walk is mm-hmm. a lot more visible than young adults learning to write, which, you know, is quite obvious because, you know, writing is a, a mental process. You're putting it on paper, whereas you can visually see the the physical development of a child. Yeah, and actually something else has just come to mind as well. So often I see students who will compare themselves to their peers, which is completely natural so they'll say things like well i don't understand and and so because of that comparison they'll also say and they'll feel very inadequate because they don't get the same things that their peers do so for example i saw one student who said i'm not very good at x you know i'm not very good at understanding the stuff in my textbooks I think, or something like that that she said, whereas one of her classmates was like, oh, yeah, this is what it means, and it's just there, look, and it was easy for that person. But so, okay, so an 18-year-old is not exactly the same as a two-year-old, but when you compare... we've recognised that from our (laughs) audience. (laughs) Thanks, Alex, for that bit of sarcasm. Yeah, so I was saying about... Uh, the student comparing herself to one of her friends who seems to get everything, which they might do, but then again, you know, their backgrounds are completely different. And so I feel like they can't compare each other. But using that metaphor of using very small children as a comparison again, now both you and I have very, have had young children. You're also a little bit older now, but they are very different, aren't they, in terms of the pace of their development and 
small children are very good at different things. And because uh, they are still developing very fundamental skills, I think that difference is very obvious in the early years. Okay, <laughs> so take, for example, when children start talking or when children start walking, it can be, or when they start rolling around, it can vary a lot. And I, I'm not an expert in early years, but as it happens, I did study that at university. Go on then, Alex, you fill us in. Child development. Yeah, you've got rolling, you've got movement stuff. <laughs> That's about all I remember from my degree. It's been a while, hasn't it? Alex? <laughs> it has, yes. <laughs> But that's the other thing, isn't it? Like you learn something or you feel like you've mastered it, but actually if you don't kind of keep it in your mind, if you don't use that knowledge for periods of time, it goes. But you know what, actually? Um, I never felt like I knew I'd learnt stuff from my um, yeah, my degree, but it's come to me over time. It has been in there. So my elders has been what many people would kind of stay late with a lot of things and so generally his style is just as you know everyone around us you know every child of the same age around us is going through certain developments Ralph isn't and he might kill me for this one day <laughs> when we're world famous yes yes when we're world famous so and but the thing but his style is just simply just as you kind of think it's not going to happen, it all happens at once. That's Ralph's style. So, for example, we met up with some friends the other day, and their daughter is the same age as Ralph, and she's got several of her adult teeth already, whereas Ralph's got two tiny little ones. So, like some, we had a dentist who actually said, did any of you have this problem? Which I was not very happy about, because I believe that he is going to grow his teeth in the perfect time for him. And also, Ralph is quite small for his age. He's eight, but they're five-year-olds who are taller than him. So my theory about this is that there's no point in him having bigger teeth when he hasn't got the growth to match it yet. <laughs> he hasn't got a bigger jaw to accommodate Exactly. Them. You know, yeah, he's, yeah. he's a sense. tiny child and he's got a small jaw. So what's the point in having two big teeth to fit? the jaw and, and then you're going to have to have lots of work done later on to correct it so I think it shouldn't be age related and so back to the point earlier on that we were making that all of a sudden my achievements at the age of 32 are making these sock dolls and creating them were less impressive because people deemed it not an age appropriate undertaking yeah but so but it did teach me a lot of things like how to market and I even looked into commercializing it so we approached factories in China to design, to create samples, to see if we could scale it up. And that teaches you a lot that you do not learn at university. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would say, I would say to some extent that that was, how would I frame it? So I would say that taught me a lot more about life than what I learned at university. Mm. Okay. Okay. Would you like to hear about some of my <laughs> spectacular failures. I would love to hear about your spectacular <laughs> failures, Alex. Right. Okay. Okay. So we've got a range of options here. We've got being 13 year old and like being arrested for drugs. 
<laughs> we've got being at university and walking out of an exam without writing a single thing. We've got... I'm interested in both those stories so far. Okay, okay. Um, we've got being married for 19 years and then thinking, wow, okay, no. <laughs> okay. And then we've also got, I guess, the last couple of three years at work. I've got a very similar story to tell about that too, I think. I'll go with whatever you'd like to tell. But also, I was going to say that for our listeners out there, if you are, you are interested in more stories from Alex, maybe we should put it to a vote. Ooh. So I don't think we have time for all of those stories today. But if you'd like to hear them all, I'm sure we'll find a way to tell. So please subscribe to our podcast. So you and don't send miss. us a message. Because we need to yes. know if you if you're interested in this kind of sordid level of detail. Yes. So send us a DM on any of our <laughs> social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. So send us a DM to vote for which of Alex's stories you'd most like to hear. But also subscribe because then you won't miss it. You know, it comes through on the RSS feeds, and um, you'll you'll be sure to know when when Alex's stories come out. Okay. Okay. So, as a bit of a teaser, I'm not going to go into the the past ones. I'm going to go into what's happened more recently. So, the experience of having a major restructure at work, it's been very, very dramatic. Virtually all the people I used to work with were made redundant all of a sudden. I was so one losing of them. Tracy was one of them. Luckily, she was able to apply for another job. So I still get to see her pretty face. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, plus now we work and then we set up weird learning. So we now did, Alex we did. cannot get because, away from me. Because this is my get out route. I realized that the institution I worked for didn't really give a damn about how good my work was. They They were interested in the bottom line profits, the future direction of the company. They weren't interested in individual workers and what they contributed. So that was really eye-opening. And as part of this whole very, very scary situation just after a pandemic, I somehow ended up being co-chair of the union, which was a big surprise. So I've started off uh, being equalities officer because equalities is quite a nice thing to work for because everyone says they believe in equality, even the management. So that was that was lovely. But then it turns out everyone else from the union was pretty much made redundant. So I ended up as co-chair. And for a while, it was just chair on its own. And wow, was that a learning curve. So, so I had to learn. Go on. So would you say in that case you kind of got promoted from <laughs> against my will? <laughs> against you. <laughs> I never wanted to do that. I wanted to take on a bit more responsibility, learn a few things. But all of a sudden, I was in this leadership role, and it was actually because the other person who was the chair had quit because you know they found stress, it too difficult it? after the first kind of meeting but I, w I I stayed in the role for a year and a bit and it was 
difficult. So if we're talking about failure, during that time... I think it time, was a challenge. I don't think you... Yeah, no, no, you probably, it wasn't a failure. It, mm-hmm. it was... But it was a challenge, yes. I had to learn how to chair meetings. I had to learn how to have members being somewhat difficult and challenge me and say, this is not how a meeting is run. (laughs) It's like, I don't know. (laughs) First time doing this, mate. The other thing Um, is it's also a very thankless role, isn't it? Because often people's like employees are the union. But yeah. there is this conception that employees join the union and the union sticks up for them. And they don't really think that it's a voluntary role being on the committee for many yeah. people yeah. and that yeah. people are giving their time to members. Like, yeah, a lot of yeah. members don't see it that way. Yeah. So there were several meetings when I wanted the floor to kind of open up and swallow me. But that was not my job. I just had to hang in there and get through it. And what's that? what that has taught me is that I can be pretty much invincible. I can get through this stuff. So even the most traumatic experiences can be really reinforcing, after, obviously afterwards, when you look mm-hmm. back and think, okay, wow, I got through that. I now know how this works, but I also know how strong I am. Mm, absolutely. And that's, you know, I think that's the thing. And sometimes people feel like, oh, maybe I didn't want to be that strong. But oh, yes, I, definitely. But. <laughs> but I think very often these kind of more extreme situations are thrust upon us. Like nobody nobody really chooses those leaps of faith. We, cho- we choose like tiny steps of faith. And Some we just, us. yeah, I guess I can't speak for everyone. But I think most people don't really choose to be in very uncomfortable situations, and mm. it is often thrust upon us. Yeah, yeah, and, and they can and be being very... a teacher. So I did a PGCE, and mm-hmm. it is quite uncomfortable. You eventually, and even at university, you learn to become comfortable with uncomfortable situations. Mm-hmm. So nowadays, if um, students refuse to cooperate or you get the, the, the wall of silence, um, sometimes I'll just step back and observe for a bit because mm-hmm. we'll well, see what happens. And I think especially at university, um, students are responsible for their own learning. So if they don't want to take part, they don't get to learn, yeah. you know, because it's, yeah. not, it's not the teacher's responsibility to feed all the knowledge to them. Talk about spoon feeding at school. But not just Um, that. Um, It's not a person's responsibility to manage the feelings of another person or a class of people. mm -hmm. You know, it's we do what we do. Um, How people react to it is down to them. It is down to them. And speaking of which, you know, we're talking about like leaps of faith versus tiny steps. And I don't think, okay, so striking up a conversation with a person next to you in a classroom full of strangers might be quite intimidating. Used to be for me, yeah. It, yeah, but um, it is doable. I would say it is doable. It can just start with a simple hello. And I think very often you'll find that the person who was sat next to you is very grateful for that hello. Yeah, yeah. So I used to struggle with um, self-esteem, self-confidence, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that the only person's opinion about me that matters is myself. 
because if I feel bad about myself, it doesn't matter if everybody else in the world thinks I'm awesome, I won't mm-hmm. believe it. Whereas yeah. fundamentally, it's if I know what I believe makes a good person, and if I try and achieve those things. Well, it's good. Yeah, so speaking about, you know, the, the only person... Conversation yeah. with the person next door, person next door, um, that's nothing now. That's just like, I think I'm a friendly person, I'm a nice person, so I'm just going to say hi. Yes, and it's but on Alex, if they don't respond. But you have chaired meetings, and you've now been in some very tough negotiations. Oh, dear God, so yes. So, I would say that compared to that thing, <laughs> to the person <laughs> okay, next okay, to you okay. is... I would say that's probably why. But so I wanted to come back to what you were saying earlier on about, you know, the only person's opinion that matters is your own. Mm-hmm. Or the only person's opinion about you that matters is your own. And to pick up on what you were saying about, I suppose, yeah, kind of the last three years, although I wasn't very involved in the union other than hearing your news about, about <laughs> it. But I wanted to talk about the workplace and meetings in in particular, because speaking about speaking to the person next to you, I think meetings and group work can be quite intimidating situations sometimes, Mm. because you often get a few dominant voices that overshadow people who are perhaps a little bit more introverted. And I was certainly one of the more introverted ones. Yeah, yeah. And I used to be. Yeah. And I've been, you know, on a couple of teams now over the years where I didn't really understand where I fit in. And, but I kind of held with me. I kind of remembered that I was the candidate who got the job. Mm. So I was, I knew I was there for a reason, but I wasn't always able to put my finger on what that reason was. Yeah. yeah, and on hindsight, I think now I do understand that I think the reason I was chosen was because I had a different perspective. But mm. I just want to point out that sometimes being the one person with a different perspective in a group full of people is very intimidating. And it can be quite difficult to you know, want to speak up when no one else in the room is even touching on the thoughts that are going through your mind. Yeah, but the thing is, often when you do speak up, other people kind of come in and say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've thought about that." I, yeah, but the subtext is, dare... I didn't want to say. I yeah, because worried. people don't want to rock the boat. One of the ways I've kind of found around that is through one-to-one conversations. I mean, I'm an introvert anyway, so I tend to thrive more on one-to-one conversations to perhaps kind of test out my thinking and get that validation of people. And, you know, Alex, you've certainly been that sounding board for me on many an occasion. <laughs> and yeah, and, and also, so this is something I I wrote about in our sort of weekly emails to our mailing list. So if you're interested in more of these mullings, then do subscribe to our mailing list as well. I try to send out useful stuff as much as possible or, you know, things that I feel would resonate with people. And yes, yeah, so, and and for a long time as well, I wasn't investing in my own personal development because having small children, I felt it was very not conducive to, you know, being able to sit down and read a book, especially because at that time, when I was fairly new to my previous role, I started off by reading, you know, these academic publications, which are incredibly dry. And 
they take a lot of concentration. So I struggled a lot with that and I made very little progress. And for a long time, I felt very ignorant and kind of out of things. But one day, you know, so I was just listening to the radio and there was this author giving an interview and she talked about Audible. So I bought her book on Audible that day and started listening to it. And I would say that was a bit of a turning point for me. I know it's not even a big deal. but It is, actually. So you've, you've talked a lot about the influence of audible kind of like books. So being able mm-hmm. to do something or drive and listen to literature at the same time. And you are literally always quoting something to me. So it, it's okay. a big difference. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so when I talk, so when I speak particularly to other mums, they do say that it's very transformative to them. But for some reason, you know, it took me a long time to kind of rediscover that. I, I mean, years ago, I was, you know, trying to, le- I was learning languages through audio books and stuff. And then I just kind of fell out of the habit. Uh, but I guess it's because, you know, having to drive to work, because for a long time, I was like walking or cycling. And so I don't, I wouldn't listen to anything while I'm cycling, that's for certain. So I, I picked up this kind of audio habit again. And alongside books, I started listening to podcasts and stuff like that. But one of the things I wanted to say in relation to you know, being at tables, at meetings, and feeling intimidated was something that I learned from Michelle Obama. So this is when I'm going to be giving a quote, <laughs> Alex, because I, I probably can't replicate this in its entirety. But Michelle Obama says that You know, she's been on every important table you can think of, NGOs, exec boards, whatever. And when people have asked her, how does it feel sitting with all these very accomplished people, her observation is they're just really not that smart. Yeah, yeah. My my reaction would probably be, um, you know, screw you. I deserve to be here. You know, you are just people. (laughs) Absolutely. And and that's the thing, you know. we all deserve to be at the table and mm. our opinions all matter, especially if it's different. I think it's more important to mm. learn from someone who has a different opinion than to yeah. just keep parroting the same thing over and over again. Because yeah. that's and, one of the problems with the world at the moment is that we just have the same people, the same opinions in all of the key positions. So when decisions are make, made. Yeah, we don't make progress. We don't try and think of things in a different way so we just keep repeating the same mistakes of the past yeah and something that we found i think both of us sort of started testing things out at the same time was that you know in professional circles when you have these meetings people use throw in a lot of jargon and a lot of acronyms Mm-hmm. To the point where I think it's it came to light that most people don't really understand what they mean because there's just so many of them floating around. But nobody likes to ask because nobody wants to be the person who appears stupid. And but Alex, you started challenging. This. I love that role. You know? And you know, so you were, people sometimes I just ask questions because I know other people. I've understood it, but I know other people haven't. Um, but yeah, you just say, oh. Can you give an example of that? Um, what do you mean by the phrase such and such? Mm. You just get them to explain a bit more. That's yeah, and and the thing is, it's a very non-confrontational way of asking questions as mm. well because then people don't feel challenged. And actually, if they do, 
and that's up to them to reflect on. You know, if <laughs> that's they kind of worrying if they think that. But it does. It has happened sometimes, hasn't oh, it? it? Where has, people, it you know, people talk about a website repeatedly, or they talk about an acronym, and then when you ask them, "Oh, hang on, wait, what does that acronym stand for?" Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, you yeah. realize they they don't actually know. It's something that they heard within a particular context from somewhere else, and they just keep repeating it without yeah, knowing what it is yeah. because. They have never made themselves vulnerable by trying to find out. Yeah. So I think I was in a meeting where somebody threw up the phrase, like, racial literacy. Okay. And so I asked, well, what do you mean by that? They were like, um, um. <laughs> somebody else came in and tried to give an explanation. But it's it's important that when people are talking about specific terminology that everyone in the room understands what they're talking about it is otherwise it's very alienating exactly if somebody asks that question it's really valuable for everyone else Mm -hmm. so you would our listeners you probably have heard this you know your lecturers will probably encourage everyone to ask questions by saying that you know when you do everyone benefits and that is absolutely true although we Mm. get that it can be the it can be difficult to be that voice that pipes up and asks yeah. the question. But I yeah, trust say, me, most people don't know the answer either. I would say think of it a bit like a game. You're trying it out. Just you know, mm-hmm. put your hand up, ask a question a couple of times, see what happens. It doesn't reflect badly on you, whatever the lecturer says. It's not on you. You just you, all you're doing is asking questions. That is true, although I have had some situations as an undergrad where I asked questions about the essay topics, and I remember one particular lecturer, and I I feel he was quite patronizing, like I always Mm. felt like, I always felt stupid around him, and I don't think that was me because I didn't feel stupid around other lecturers. So just bear in mind that if that's how you feel as a result of how a lecturer has responded, then... They should be doing better teaching. Yeah, yeah. Think about the fact that everyone else in the audience has seen you know, what has happened. And you now, are they going to think that the lecturer was unfair on you or that you were being unfair on the lecturer? Well, I think that can really depend, can't it? On It can, it can. But yeah. I mean, you're not the only one in the room. You are so not the only one. If somebody makes you feel bad, it's. Quite often, they're actually just embarrassing themselves. Yeah, so so anyway, coming back to Michelle Obama, um, when I heard her first book, Becoming, I read her second book as well, highly recommend it. I, like, I really love all of her work, and I think she is a brilliant person. Great personality, very compassionate, very empathetic. And one of the things she talks about is how, you know, when people approach her, Nobody ever wants to talk about how she was first lady, but they're interested in, you know, for example, her sassy daughters or the fact that she went to therapy. And and so for me, on my audio journey, I think what helped me a lot listening to that book was the realization that if Michelle Obama has these struggles, then it's completely fair enough that I should as well. You know, it just normalized all of these things. This kind of feeling alone at a table and stuff like that. And so I suppose, you know, maybe what I'm trying to say in a roundabout kind of way is it it happened to Michelle Obama. (laughs) So, you know, it's normal for all of us to feel sometimes a little bit alienated in the group. It's totally normal. 
And I might go as far as to suggest that if somebody doesn't have any of these concerns, that they're a little bit deluded, maybe a bit narcissistic, sociopathic. Well, perhaps. I think that's a little bit harsh, Alex. (laughs) It is, but these are normal concerns that normal people have. They are normal concerns, and perhaps some people might not admit it. Okay, so if you've always been in groups or at meetings where you felt perfectly confident to make your point, then yes, I am very happy for you. But at the same time, I guess the question I would want to ask in that situation is, have you pushed yourself outside of your comfort zone? Or is it because you feel at that group that now everyone thinks the same as you, or everyone is willing to listen to you? And, you know, it could be that perhaps... Other members of your group are a little bit more reserved. But if they're not saying something, perhaps they are in the situation that Alex and I found ourselves in, where your thoughts did not reflect our own. So they're voices that you might still want to extract from your group. Exactly. And so find ways to do that rather than take a step back and don't dominate the conversation because that's how you can learn something new. So if you are that sociopath or narcissist who is dominating the conversation, (laughs) <laughs> or just, you know, because cause I'm that person now in that I'm I'm quite confident and relaxed in these situations. It's all about, it, I know my own opinion. I don't yes. need to hear myself say it. What I want to hear is other people's opinions. So my Ooh. job is actually to make them feel comfortable to share their views mm-hmm. and to ask them about their views if they're quiet in yeah. a friendly way. Yes, and you can always respect people, even if you disagree with them. Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, are you a bit of a sociopath? Possibly, possibly. Um, <laughs> no, but, you I'm know, not at all. <laughs> but the thing is, you can't you can't necessarily exercise influence if you don't really know where someone else is starting from. You yeah, can't exercise you have to your... listen to people's opinions. Yeah, you can't. Um, exercise your powers of persuasion because that's what we started talking about in this episode. Well, you can exercise them. No, hang on, I haven't finished yet. <laughs> I meant if if you don't know where they are at because you can't you can't kind of pitch your ideas to them at, at the right place. Yeah, that makes sense. You have to <laughs> understand where people are starting from and reach to them in order and, to in order guide to them where, to, from where they are. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. But if they don't agree with you at the end of the day, you know, you have to accept that. Yeah, I think that is true. Okay, so we've gone in quite deep into lots of different issues and scenarios today. One of the key takeaways for me that I've learned from myself and from other people is that very often exponential growth and confidence and, you know, this self-assurance comes from very deep vulnerability and from the fact that you have navigated your way from very difficult situations in the past and found found your peace with it, made your peace with those situations, recognize the growth that came out of it, and yeah, acknowledge I, I, I would agree. things. Yeah. So for me, it's about you have to expect that fifty percent of the time, or a large proportion of the time, things are not going to go smoothly especially if you're working with digital tools or anything like that, or public presentation. But also with research. But also with research. Oh because God. Only about 10% of the time it works, or even yeah. 
probably. Um, but also with research, you know, sometimes there is lots of sometimes there's lots of material available on a certain topic, and other times there isn't. And sometimes you have to kind of go back into primary data or like create your own findings out of. You know, you just have to cobble things together a little bit when it comes to research because field is perhaps not quite there yet. I'll have to think of a better example in the future. Well, I, I can give an example from my own research. Okay, so, go on. <laughs> so I used to dissect the nervous systems out of locusts. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about teeny tiny things that you have to dissect under a microscope. And then I would have, it would be already stained, um, but I would have to run it through and like a, elaborate alcohol series so I could then slice it up and view it under an electron microscope and it would take like you know two days to do this first time I did it awesome results it worked really well and then I spent about I don't know six months trying to replicate it never worked it was (laughs) horrendous Uh, yeah so sometimes research doesn't quite work out but you know i suppose in my case because i did english it was more text-based and in the whole kind of in terms of food history when i started that was there were fairly limited sources so we had to go into primary quite a lot and we had to you know so i looked at a lot of kind of 16th century recipe books and i extracted information from the place like all the references to food and tried just try to work out what they meant a lot of it is was quite metaphorical, related to appetite, kind of physical appetite, sex, that sort of thing. So, I mean, you know, when you think about it, I suppose nothing has changed. You know, food is always a little bit raunchy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't tend to think of that when I'm cooking the uh, dinner meal. <laughs> no, I, ser- I certainly don't. When I'm trying to cook three different recipes for fussy eaters, I don't think it's very raunchy at all. But <laughs> apparently male dramatists, because... That was the dominant voice during yeah. the Renaissance period. Thought food was extremely raunchy, and I suppose there is that saying: "The weight of a man's heart's through his stomach." So maybe there was something in that. Anyway, mm. on that note, <laughs> shall we finish here for today? Yes. Okay. Thank you for listening and spending part of your day with us. We would love to engage with you further. So please send us a message if there's any topics you'd like us to discuss in particular. Mm-hmm. But thank you very much. Goodbye. And also don't forget to vote on which of Alex's stories you would like to hear in subsequent episodes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. My my life is an open book. <laughs> yes, well, I think ours has been today, definitely. <laughs> so, yes, thank you again for listening. And until next time. Farewell. See you. Bye.